At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. I have high expectations for sports because I know the role they've played in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, as somebody who loves to play, like the concern was not getting kids back on the fields in a safe way. It was watching pro sports in a passive way. Um, the concern was not having a healthy society so that we could get the, the, the icing back on the cake. It was just getting the icing back. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we're speaking to a sports columnist for the New York Daily News, Jane McManus. And before she was with the NYDN, she was at ESPN for 10 years covering the NFL. She was a columnist for ESPNW. And currently she is the director of the Center for Sports Communication at Marist College. And Marist just put out a very, very interesting article slash poll about sports viewing habits during the pandemic. And I want to talk to her about that. It's going to be really interesting. Also, I've got some choice words, if you will, about the NBA and the bubble, my last bubble assessment, my bubble assessment, if you will. And then I also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more. But first, Jane McManus. So first and foremost, Jane McManus, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, happy to be here, Dave. Anytime. Cool. So um, according to this poll that Marist College put out, uh, the, the top line was that 46% of American sports fans say they are spending less time watching sports. Why is that the case? Well, that's a that's a great question. And that was the question that we actually set out to answer, or at least Um, find out a little bit more information about. There are two things happening that uh, I think people were drawing a straight line between. And I just wanted to find out a little bit more about whether or not there really was a straight line. And and the first thing is that that sports ratings are down. Uh, They've been down ever since sports have returned after the pandemic. And I think there was an assumption uh, among many in the sports industry that once sports came back, that fans would really be hungry to watch live sports and to follow sports. So to find that that's not the case and that the ratings don't reflect that uh, is a bit of a question mark. 
And then on the other side, you have a very uh, vocal group of fans that have expressed a real discontent with the way that athletes have dealt with um, discontent in the wake of the George Floyd killing this summer. So athletes across the board from all different sports have been speaking out wearing Black Lives Matters t-shirts. Um, many of them are kneeling um, or, you know, with the NFL uh, playing two anthems to start a game. And I think that, as I said, there are a vocal minority there who were saying, well, that's why ratings are down. And it turns out that's not really why ratings are down. But the, you know, part of our curiosity was, is that a straight line or are those just two things that are happening that don't happen to be very connected? Hmm. So the line that you're hearing from certain very loud voices on the right wing, uh, I think their slogan is, if you go woke, you go broke. Uh, that, that That's not correct in your estimation. Certainly not if you're the NBA or if you're an NBA fan, which and a lot of those fans actually report watching more of the NBA because of those athlete protests. So what we did was we we surveyed sports fans asking them, are you watching more or less sports are the same? And that 46 percent who reported watching less, um, many, many reported watching the same, but only 8% reported watching more, right? So the idea is we have more free time now, you know, maybe we're not as socially engaged outside of our homes in the same way. So wouldn't you spend more of that time watching sports? And the answer to that is, is no. And the, and then we asked, well, if you're not spending more time watching sports, what are the reasons that you might not be? And one of those you know, options was, um, is it that you're not able to gather in groups because of the coronavirus? Does that change your viewing habits? And a lot of people said that that 35% of people said that had something to do with it. We asked if it's because people, people are watching political news instead, right? The cable ratings are very high right now for political news. Um, and some people said that, although not, not as many, we were able to break down the responses, um, by political affiliation, Republican, Democrat, or independent, gender, um, also whether or not they were fans of particular sports. For example, NASCAR fans, 44% were less likely to watch sports because of athlete protests. So there you have a very involved demographic. And with Republicans, 70% said they were watching less because of uh, protests. But it really was balanced, and just in terms of the numbers, by Democrats who said they were watching the same or more and independents who said they were watching the same or more. So it seems that that the athlete protests have been polarizing, but just not polarizing in one way. They've, um, they've affected viewership. Politics are affecting sports now in this sense, but not in, it's, but, but the problem is that the larger picture is is pointing down, and it the gravity of the athlete protests is certainly not enough to make much of a dent. So it's it's happening because of a lot of other forces as well. Exactly, and and aren't uh, those forces they they predate the pandemic too? Correct, like we're dealing sure. with a generational trend away from people watching the sports the way, say, you and I watched sports when we were growing up, partly because of people having more options and partly because of cord cutting. And I still don't think they found a good way to measure ratings of people who stream sports. Does that all factor in? I think it does factor in. The, you know, you have to keep in mind that that our survey is people reporting their own habits. So mm. even if it's cord cutting, 46% of people say that they're watching less 
to begin with. So it's not just that people aren't being counted. They're actually self-reporting that they're watching less. But yeah, I agree with you. And I think if you actually take a look at our data, which is available uh, at Marist.com on the Marist Poll website, if you look at our data, there are real differences between the way people under 45 consume sports and the way people over 45 consume sports. And if actually, if I were a sports league and I wanted to take a look at this data, um, that's where I'd be looking. What are the differences? Um, and I also think, you know, that the number of, of, of women who identify a sports fan were 47% and men 53%. So you had a lot of, you know, so, so there were a lot of women in this as well. And I think sometimes women tend to be discounted as sports viewers. Um, but but certainly there's a there's a robust number of women who report that they watch sports on a regular basis in our poll. You know, when I was reading the report, I was surprised what popped for me was how much it was the inability of people to have a collective space to watch as being a disincentive to watch sports. And it it, it speaks to, I don't know, maybe some of the uh, naivete of sports executives thinking, oh, if we just put it out there on televisions, even if people are isolated in their homes, they're going to want to watch when the reality is that the pandemic's also taken away, you know, a sense of joy that people are, are connect with sports. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this to me is the biggest thing is that, is that, you know, there was this idea that, that if you provide sports, they will come. And, and I think honestly, what we're seeing is that the imperative to get sports back wasn't the market so much as it was the leagues, the leagues needed to get sports back for the economics of um the of sports to work and and i think that and and they and to assume that that everyone would just welcome it back with open arms considering how much disruption there's been in our society generally i mean i've been saying since the start of this pandemic that you know we are able to have sports because we have a functioning society and we are able to have the planes get to you know get, get athletes to from city to city we we get stadiums provided with food we have fan bases that feel healthy enough to fill a stadium. Um, and, and the idea that, that, you know, that so much about our daily lives has changed in ways that we, we just don't even understand. I mean, people talk about their mental health, their anxiety, fracturing attention spans, uh, you know, help being on screens so much more time than we normally are. You, you know, sometimes you just don't necessarily want to have to focus on one more thing. Are you really going to add another thing to follow and have to be, um, mindful of in your life. And then and then I think, why is it that we're interested in sports? And, and some of those reasons are because when you run into that guy that, you know, went to Michigan State, you like to be able to, you know, talk about how his team lost and, you know, give him a hard time, right? Like there are a lot of things like that, that the sports is social currency. Just it's not what it used to be. You're not engaging with as many people. So there's, there's no time and really to have those water cooler conversations that, you know, sports are such a lubricant for. Mm-hmm. And you said it earlier in the conversation you know, that sports really are the result or the reward of the functioning society. Uh, that's been one of the most used quotes since this started, and it was something that you first coined, and it's largely been attributed to Sean Doolittle. Uh, is that frustrating at all? <laughs> no, I mean, it, at first I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, like, it really is important that the idea, though, gets out there. And he has a platform that's just a little bit larger than mine is. Uh, so I've certainly, I've certainly, I, I did say, you know, once I heard it, um, that I felt a little bit like a, the woman in the meeting who who says something and everybody's like, yeah, yeah. And then a guy says it 10 minutes later, and they're like, that's a fantastic idea. Um 
but at the same time, you know, look, I, I've been in this business long enough to know that a, you know, major league pitcher is going to get a little bit more play when he says something than, than I am. But it's such an important point, like you said, because if I'm interpreting it correctly, it's almost like what we're dealing with right now is the sports industry really trying to push a square peg into a round hole because we're not, and they're having some success with it, but not total success because we're not functioning. So why should sports operate and function in our lives the same day it would in the same way it would in a non-pandemic type of situation? The, exactly. And and I and I almost I almost feel like sports have really let us down um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, they let themselves get bullied, I think, by Donald Trump into coming back because he had political reasons for that. Now, if you are going to if, if as a society we're going to say sports are so important that we need to have them back right now. To me, what you would do is you would have, you know, different sports leagues get together, sit down at the table and say, what can we do so that the process of bringing sports back is not a drain, is not a net negative for American society right now, given what we're doing. Can we, for example, spread the word about the proper use uh, of masks? Can we, um, pr you know, partner with hospitals to make sure that they have the PPE that they need? Can we do PSAs um, about, you know, community and engagement and keeping ourselves safe? Is there a way, you know, and the NBA did ultimately do something that was similar to this, which is, you know, we have a testing capacity for us. We provide a testing capacity for someone someplace else in the community, for another institution within the community. But sports didn't do that. They they acted like a, you know, again, with, with a few exceptions, but they acted like businesses and self-interested businesses that were coming back for purely economic reasons, as opposed to, and I think, you know, in some ways I kind of feel like, I have high expectations for sports because I know the role they've played in my life, mm -hmm. you know, as somebody who loves to play. Like the concern was not getting kids back on the fields in a safe way. It was watching pro sports in a passive way. Um, the concern was not having a healthy society so that we could get the, the, the icing back on the cake. It was just getting the icing back. Um, and, I, and I'm disappointed by that because I feel like, you know, Sports ask a lot of fans. It asks for loyalty. It asks for your 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 dollars. It asks for um, you know you to follow your teams and be engaged uh, to come to games, to travel, to make it a big part of your life. And then when this when when it flips, when our when when something happens that flips that dynamic, I feel like sports didn't rise to the occasion. We didn't give back to the community in the way that really could have made a difference, especially at the beginning of this thing. Mm -hmm. Have they also been, um, in your mind, uh, d destructive, maybe perhaps particularly at the collegiate level? Yeah. Uh, in terms of like putting forward this idea that somehow it's safe for, you know, 90,000 people to get together in the swamp? Well, not just that, but allowing massive outbreaks to go on that are infecting young college players. Uh, when they come back to train in different facilities, I mean, these college players, as you know, I'm, I don't have to tell you anything about this, but like they don't have insurance beyond the two years that they play. They don't have guaranteed scholarships year to year necessarily. Um, you know, the labor that they're providing is is not compensated in, in the way that one compensates labor in a uh, capitalist society. So they don't have um, the security that could go along with the risk that they're taking. They are taking, they are making a bet and they're taking risks based on the potential of future earnings, which may or may not come. As you know, for many of these college players, they will not play beyond college. So for them to have to take these risks for the community, for the economic gain of the colleges, 
uh, is, I mean, I think it's immoral. And especially when you tune into those, um, those games and, you know, uh, you know, coaches are wearing Kleenexes on their faces. It's, uh, it's embarrassing. And again, they're not doing, again, it's, it's about making the collective community safer. And that is something that colleges are actively working against in getting, in getting college football back. Tremendous. Well, um, I guess what, one last question is um, about the poll is what to you is the most important takeaway? The most important takeaway to me was how many people were self-reporting that they're watching less. Because like you, I was wondering, were we not counting everybody in the ratings? Was the cord cutting getting to be such an extent? And and just to find that it's such an overwhelming number, almost half of all sports fans say they're watching less. Not Americans, but all sports fans. Um, and I think that that's a tremendous number. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be... There's a lot to be learned from this. And I think a lot of times the rah-rah noise of the sports press kind of doesn't want to talk about things that are, uh, you know, not good news and that are not part of the the, the collective rationalization to bring sports back. But I, I do think that it's an important piece of information in terms of, of the, the push to get sports back um, that maybe is not so much coming from all fans. Mm. So before we let you go, I, I really do have to ask you, I've been a fan of your uh, writing for some time and you know, seeing the work you're doing as the director of the Center for Sports Communication at Marist has also been really interesting. How did you get into that gig? <laughs> well, it's uh, interesting you say, I mean, it's a long story. Um, I was part of the 2017 layoff in April at, at ESPN. And what they, one of the things that they did was that they, they paid the remainder of the, of all of the contracts of the talent that were laid off. And there are about a hundred of us. Um, and I had a, I had more than a year left on my deal. So I ended up moving with my family to London for two years and traveling all over Europe and really taking it as a time to kind of refresh and learn and experience some things. I, as you know, when you're in the middle of sports writing, you know, in, in, of a career, sometimes you just don't have the opportunity to pause like that. So I took a pause and, you know, was just really soaking in that experience. And, um, and someone alerted me to the possibility that this job might become available. And it's really the only uh, program like this, which is in driving distance from my house. Um, and so I was, and I was interested, I'd, I'd been teaching at Columbia Graduate School of Journalism for probably 10 to 15 years as an adjunct for their sports journalism class with Sandy Padway, who is, you know, my professor and mentor. Um, great, a great, a great man. Um, and, uh, so I'd, I'd always kind of had a, um, a foot in academia to begin with. And when this job became available, I was interested. I mean, part of what has been so enjoyable, you know, rewarding is to like, you know, writers like Katie Strang and Jenny Vrentis uh, and Andy Martino were in, in Sandy Padway's classes. And, and I edited their papers and have talked to them over the years and, and you know, like to think that I've been a bit of a mentor or sound board when needed. And, um, and so just thinking about that and, and kind of what the next steps were for my career, it seemed like a natural thing to do. And so I just took a flyer on it and I've loved it. I really love this role. That's awesome. And then I ask this of all, uh, my guests, I ask them, what music are you listening to these days when you're doing your work? But I guess for you also, when you're commuting, what's playing in the car? Oh, probably more, you know what, I li it's more podcasts, and I listen to a lot of science podcasts. 
Um, I listen to uh, Johns Hopkins does one called uh, On Call, and it's about uh, virology. I listen to This Week in Virology. I listen to a couple of BBC podcasts on science. If I'm listening to music, it's generally old school hip hop. Um, that is my go-to. I love Public Enemy. They're my favorite band of all time. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of what I listen to. And I also, the other day I listened to the Hamilton soundtrack and sang it at the top of my lungs. So, you know, I have a, a large variety of interests. <laughs> if you were, say, 18 years old or 21 years old right now and just beginning to get your head around uh, sports writing or whatnot, would you today advise yourself coming out in 2020 to do this job or would you say find something else to do? Well, what I'm telling our students, because this is something that's actually very close to, you know, something that I'm paying a lot of attention to right now. As you know, there's a softness in the media market right now, especially in sports. Um, and what I would tell students is not to give up on their dreams of being a sports writer, but you might have to do something else in the meantime. So for example, if you're getting a degree right now and you're majoring in sports communication, you know, I might advise you to get a paralegal certificate in addition to that, or to, to minor in business, or to think about something um, that could be, a, you know, help kind of round out your skill set with maybe a little bit of a harder science or something like that. Um, so that you have, that, that you're not just putting all your eggs in one basket. And I think that's probably smart for a lot of people right now, just because, you know, we don't know where things are kind of come back, how quickly they're going to come back. And, um, you know, making yourself more versatile is always a good idea. Mm, Jane McManus, thanks so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Anytime, thank you so much for having me, Dave. That's great. All right, we'll be back right after this for the quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Everybody out there, please join the nation's first ever festival taking place virtually November 18th to the 21st for four days of wide-ranging conversations, briefing sessions, and interviews in the wake of the most critical election of our lives Featuring Senator Bernie Sanders, Naomi Klein, Michael Bennett, Rick Steves, Alicia Garza, and many more. Tickets are on sale at thenation.com slash nationfestival. Oh, hey, I'll be speaking at it, too. And now, let's come back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. I now have some choice words about the NBA bubble. Okay, look, the smoke has cleared, the confetti's been swept away, the LA Lakers are the 2020 NBA champs, and the Seattle Storm are the WNBA champions. LeBron James and Brianna Stewart are right where they're supposed to be, at the apex of their respective sports. Somehow, all that was done in a hermetically sealed, COVID-free Disney bubble, or wubble in WNBA parlance, in Orlando, Florida. There were highlight-worthy moments, fantastic finishes, stirring comebacks, and a number of players who made the leap in public consciousness to another level of stardom by the way they played. In other words, the bubble was the site of a legitimate NBA season and WNBA season, no asterisk required. The teams also did it without a single positive COVID test, something the NFL is currently learning is easier said than done. 
This is a tribute to the professionalism of the players and the behind the scenes employees who are separated from families, friends, and loved ones for months as a precondition to eking out the 2020 season. They had to summon the will to play their best in circumstances alien to their professional existence. I'm sure I wasn't the only one who heard that there would be no games in Orlando in front of live fans and assumed it would just not look like serious NBA ball. I was very wrong. But there's another question when assessing the bubble. That is whether it was the correct decision politically for the players to enter this space and play ball in the first place. From the moment NBA Commissioner Adam Silver posed this idea, he was met with reasons why they shouldn't do it. First, it was people like NBA coach George Carl, former NBA coach, who thought that the entire schedule should be canceled with no champion crowned rather than play a distorted version of it in Orlando. Several players with pre-existing health issues also bowed out, believing the risk factor to be greater than any reward. But the greatest obstacle to the bubble was when all-star Kyrie Irving made an argument that playing would be a distraction and a disservice to the mass movements in the streets following the police murder of George Floyd. Irving, who is not just a top player, but also a union vice president, almost derailed the entire operation with an argument that connected with a wide swath of players. After Irving made his case, a widely respected player said to ESPN, quote, Once we start playing basketball again, the news will turn from systemic racism to who did what in the game last night. It's a crucial time for us to be able to play and blend that and impact what's happening in our communities. We're asking ourselves, where and how can we make the biggest impact? Mental health is part of the discussion too and how we handle all of that in a bubble. Irving's argument, however persuasive, did not carry the day because players like LeBron James and union president Chris Paul argued that they could do more to raise awareness about racial inequity if they played. That way they could maintain their platform and keep the spotlight in the event that actions in the streets needed to be amplified. To help aid the LeBron position, Adam Silver and the NBA added Black Lives Matter to the court, allowed players to choose from a prearranged selection of slogans to put on their uniforms, and incorporated get out the vote messaging. This uneasy combination of protest and commerce cracked after the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. George Hill of the Milwaukee Bucks said in frustration, we shouldn't have even come to this place to be honest. That frustration led to the Bucks going on strike for racial justice. This led, of course, to a cascade of strikes across the sports landscape against police violence. It also added to the imagination, the idea that labor could play a role in the fight for black lives. We also need to remember that the players through their strikes recentered the national discussion on the shooting of Jacob Blake at a moment when the RNC was trying to recast the summer protests as the actions of a small group of traveling Antifa anarchists and not the mass actions of multiracial masses in all 50 states fed up with racist police violence. The question that will now hang over the entire episode is whether it was worth doing. The answer to this really starts with understanding that athletes historically are less leaders in the fight for social justice than they are amplifiers of the struggles already taking place in the streets. It is exceptionally rare for an athlete to speak out in a vacuum. Instead, it is the streets, the campuses, and the workplaces that launch social revolt. Athletes can then play a critical role in projecting these messages from the grassroots across the cultural landscape, as well as getting these ideas in front of the masses of depoliticized white sports fans 
This is why the athlete's political platform is so heavily policed by Trump, Fox News, and sports franchise owners. It recalls the time Muhammad Ali had his title stripped away following his resistance to the Vietnam War draft, and former champion Floyd Patterson wrote in Esquire, quote, The prize fighter in America is not supposed to shoot off his mouth about politics, particularly when his views oppose the governments, and that might influence many among the working classes who follow Bach. The prize fighter is considered by most people to be merely a tough, insensitive man, half-naked entertainer wearing a muzzled mouthpiece. Well, athletes are no longer muzzled. Very difficult for the powers that be in sports to put this particular team back in the bottle. They are feeling their power, and the NBA has led this movement away from silence during a time of profound crisis. Politically, the bubble popped, and our politics are better for it. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the part of the show I call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to John Carlos and Tommy Smith because October 16th just passed. And that is the 52nd anniversary of that moment in 1968 when they raised their fists to the heavens. I, of course, did a book with John Carlos. Love John Carlos. Dr. John is like family to me. Uh, and two of my favorite John Carlos's quotes, which I shall bless you with. Uh, he once said, I have no regrets. The people with regrets are the ones who were in Mexico City in 1968 and chose to do nothing. Oof. Love that quote. Heard him say that at Occupy Wall Street, where we spoke to the occupation at Zuccotti Park. Uh, and he said... I was going to raise my fist no matter where I was. If I had been home in Harlem, I would have raised it in front of the Apollo Theater in Harlem. I just happened to be at the Olympics. Boom. That's some John Carlos for you right there. So just stand up to Dr. John Carlos and Dr. Tommy Smith. Thank you so much for being you 52 years later still in the struggle. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Goes to the Tennessee Titans. All credit to them for being a successful football team. All credit to them for completely shellacking last week uh, the Buffalo Bills on Tuesday night. But their attitude afterwards that they did it because everybody doubted them after their COVID outbreak was just a little bit gross for me. I'm sorry, but when we're talking about overcoming adversity, that's like coming back from a torn Achilles. That's like coming back because a family member is sick or passed away. That's what overcoming adversity is. Overcoming adversity is not, yeah, we were all incredibly irresponsible. We went to parties. We all got COVID, but we got better and we kicked the Bills' ass. Come on. Tennessee Titans, wear a mask and sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. 
Well, this is usually the part of the show where we do something called Kaepernick Watch, the latest with Colin Kaepernick. All I have to say about it is that if you haven't seen the recent essays, and they're putting more up every week from Colin Kaepernick's medium article series called Abolition for the People, you need to check that out over at Medium. The Abolition for the People series that Kaepernick Publishing is putting out is just dropping new essays every week. And every week I'm getting so much out of going there and visiting it. So if you want to see the political intervention that Colin Kaepernick is still trying to make, check out Abolition for the People over at Medium. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much to Jane McManus. Terrific interview, terrific writer, terrific professor. Uh, Thank you so much to David Tigaboo, the executive producer of this podcast. Thank you to everybody out there listening. If you like the show, yo, do us all a solid and give it a nice little rating. Write a little review of it. All that stuff helps a big deal in the algorithmic world of podcasts. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every Every time you buy gas, use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.